Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we chat about advertising, media, and marketing. I'm your host, Omar Oaks, Campaign Magazine Media and Tech Editor. Later in the show, we'll be joined by YouTube's UK Managing Director, Ben McCone-Wilson, where we'll be talking about how they're trying to sell video in new ways to advertisers, brand safety, diversity in broadcasting, and the future of TV. We'll try and find out whether YouTube is more worried about Netflix or TikTok. But first, joining me today is a deadly duo of diehard doyens of advertising trade journalism, namely Campaign UK Editor-in-Chief Gideon Spanier and Premium Content Editor Jeremy Lee. Gideon, dear editor, how are you this fine morning when we're recording? Yes, I'm good. Today is Wednesday and the I can tell you that uh, various parts of the UK are going into Tier 2, Tier 3, uh, lockdown or whatever you like to call it. So yes, the disruption continues. Yes, and everyone's very pleased about that. <laughs> and um, Jeremy, how are you? Where does lockdown find you this morning? I'm sat in my pants on the sofa as normal. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good, thank you. What's, what's, what's been catching your eye recently? Um, I can confirm, listener, that we're recording this on Zoom and Jeremy is indeed on his pants in a sofa. Um, I'm fine, thank you very much. Uh, the sun is shining um, and I think it all puts us in a better mood. Reminds me of April when, you remember, the sun was shining every day and lockdown didn't seem that bad. Uh, I, I tried to think about that as we look towards the next six months. But another reason for optimism is the new issue of Campaign Print magazine is out this week. Uh, Gideon, please tell us, what do we have on the cover this month? So on the cover, we're asking, is this the end of the line for London's creative boom? And the illustration done by our excellent art director, Chris Barker, is a, like a tube line and it shows a stop for coronavirus, another stop for Brexit, and then the end of the line. Now, no one thinks that London is suddenly going to uh, literally reach the end of the line. But it's clearly a very challenging time because remote working has just turned into something where it's possible to no longer come into the centre of London, as we, we all have proven. And actually, the UK advertising industry is amazingly London-centric. Some would say too London-centric. 85% of staff at the big six agency groups are in London. So we are asking, could the challenges which London and to extent the UK help reshape the creative landscape for the better. No one wants a recession, but maybe a advertising industry which is better spread across the UK might better reflect the UK, which we must remember is quite a divided country. It's, it's a very interesting issue. I remember in the Media Week Awards last year, there was a, there was a huge contingent, it seemed, of Manchester um, companies that had come to the fore and obviously with Channel 4 moving headquarters to Leeds, the BBC and ITV have been in Salford Media City for some time. Um, it feels like over the last few years media in particular has become less London centric. Do you, th do you think that's fair or is it still a huge way to go? You know the, the advertising and marketing services to an extent follow the clients and we have got something of a new economy with e-commerce companies. And if you look at some of the companies that have emerged in uh, the Northwest, especially in fast fashion, um, these companies like Misguided and um, Boohoo, 
These are all businesses that are quite new and they've got a new approach to marketing, but they are definitely investing in digital marketing. So, I mean, the answer to your question is, is I think things have been underway for a while. Brittany Kiefer, our culture and creativity editor, has written the cover story and traces things really back to the 1990s, the start of Cool Britannia. Globalization was good for London. A lot of work got centralized in London, global clients. 2012 with the Olympics was almost the sort of peak. But then since Brexit, let's be honest, the London ad industry called that wrong, failed to make the case to remain. And really, I think if anything, COVID could accelerate some trends like remote working and what some people call nearshoring, not having lots of people in this inner city centre and it cuts costs. And whatever features are in the magazine this month that's caught your eye? Well, um, we've got the Power 100, which is our list, our roll call of the top 100 marketers. And we've illustrated that with the marketers as superheroes this year. No one thinks that marketers um, are doing the kind of amazing work that key workers and care workers have done. But this has been a year when we've seen some brands really step up, uh, thinking, you know, from Brewdog helping with hand sanitizer to Tesco and what it's done in terms of supporting customers and so on and winning an IPA effectiveness Grand Prix just this week. So um, the Power 100 is a great read and I think uplifting. Also, we talked, Omar, about the new wave of digital businesses that are emerging and you've written a great piece on Instagram on its 10th anniversary this month. And we've talked about the Brits who built their businesses on Instagram. So I should turn that back to you and say, tell us a little bit about what that features about. Ah, thanks very much. I certainly enjoyed writing it. Um, yes, so we featured a really interesting range of businesses, um, some very famous. Uh, one is um, Joe Wicks, um, I think every listener will know by now. Um, just just the, the day before um, we were speaking to Joe, he had actually been on the front of page of the Mail on Sunday, and that just shows kind of how his star has risen in recent years. Um, but, you know, other businesses were, um, you know, Vicky's Donuts, for example, Prick, the cactus shop in East London. Uh, you know a range of businesses the common thing about them is their business would not exist without Instagram and we also spoke to um, Sarah Freer um, who's been on this podcast lately um, who just you know made the point that you know if you are a boutique business particularly in the UK and the US increasingly Instagram it really is a lifeline and it's just amazing to think number one that it's been around for 10 years now um, so yes thank you I definitely enjoyed writing it I also um, was interested in this spoken word feature that Emmett McGonagall has written now th this seems like quite a departure from our usual fare what's going on well everyone listening to this podcast hopefully enjoys the spoken word well spoken words one of the oldest if not the oldest form of communication and it's interesting i think in lockdown people have had more time to to listen and actually perhaps in these times when a lot of people are on their own uh, it's quite comforting and intimate the audio medium so We've spoken to John Cooper Clark, uh, Manuel Hussain. We've spoken to lots of interesting poets and performers who have been working more closely with brands. Again, I think this predated lockdown and COVID. People like the sort of simplicity of the spoken word. And of course, uh, and many, many advertising slogans ultimately are an incredibly catchy couple of uh, words or a, a rhyming couplet. John Cooper Clark has this great line. He says, 
Um, I, you know, the people sometimes look down on poets and so on for, for, for sullying their hands by, by working with brands. But I bet if Hogarth was alive and the money was right, he'd probably do a gin ad. <laughs> it's funny, it came up in um, the, the, the IB upfronts that's been going on over the last week. And one of them was the podcast upfronts and Frank Skinner was on it. And he's, um, he's huge into poetry and he's launched a poetry podcast. Um, and, you know, he, he brought up the case of um, Christopher Jeffries um, <laughs> when, he, when his, his name was being put through the ringer in the tabloids during that whole episode after the, the murder. Um, one of the newspapers described him as being a weirdo who um was into poetry <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how poetry even though it's so powerful and part of our culture just in some quarters is seen as something a fringe activity that maybe only weirdos do did that come across in the feature as well that that clash um i think a little bit i mean jeremy i know you enjoyed it uh, reading the spoken word feature i don't know what was your takeaway i absolutely loved it i think it's one of the most interesting features we've done for for a while um i think the poetry the issue of poetry that's something that nationwide um jim thornton at vccp he's really pushed this over the past five years i'd say in the ads and that was a real uh, turnaround a real creative turnaround for that sector and actually for advertising because i don't think i think poetry had been ignored um and he introduced a series of sort of amateur and semi-professional poets um to do their stanzas or whatever, um, and I think it really it really changed it. And I think yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. It's a really great read. There's some interesting poets in there. I mean, it's definitely been a phenomenon um, that's appeared in advertising over the recent over recent years. I think. Yeah. So my main message to everyone listening is read campaign online, and you can subscribe online, uh, to, which includes the print edition, which uh, you can get sent to your home or. Hopefully some people are still going into the office and keeping the economy going. Yep, the October issue is out from Thursday. So I think hopefully this podcast will mean that you it's available now. Even better, you could subscribe to Premium Plus and then you'll get access to Campaign AI. And remind us, uh, what do you get with Campaign AI? Premium content editor, Jed. You get me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you get, um, there's, a, there's a big report that's launching next week um, that me and Marie, you have been putting together and you get a big piece of uh, uh, research that's an ongoing piece of research that's launching in a couple of weeks so we'll reveal more details about that as happens but yeah no, it's, it's very exciting i should just say that ai stands for advertising intelligence just in case you think that it's a, a robot is doing all the work um, no it's me i am a robot i am doing all the work yeah give it 10 years give it 10 years <laughs> I can't wait to see a lot of these features, which I've not had the chance to read yet. And so thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you. Interesting news that BBH, Bartle Bogle Hegarty and Mediacom won the IPA effectiveness Grand Prix for reviving Tesco. Uh, this is the second uh, top prize in a row um, that Publishers Group has won um, following the success for Audi last time round. So they've won work for Tesco over the past five years. It follows the Tesco career of former chief executive Dave Lewis, who joined Tesco in 2014, and he's just stepped down. Um, VVH was appointed in the start of 2015. God, it's been that long. And um, Tesco also hired Mediacom later that year. 
and Michelle McKetrick was appointed as group brand director. You might remember, Jeremy, uh, the first creative work they did, they introduced Ruth Jones and Ben Miller. I do, it's absolutely terrible. Uh, do you remember they had, they, had that slight, they had that slightly dysfunctional family with a son who there was too old to be living with them, and they'd well, go around supermarkets, and, and it was all like, what the, what the hell is going on here? This simple son of theirs who should probably be at university or living somewhere else. Hello, madam. I'll open this till for you so you can come straight to the front. Still got it, Josephine. Quite flattering, really. The monthly Pilates class is doing the trick. Clearly this geezer reads my blog. It's weird being a local celeb. Da 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 the queue jump, queue jump, oi, oi, oi. Wait, they know you had that great project. They've got it all on film. This is a sting. Oh, you're being paranoid, man. It was the most bizarre campaign I've ever seen. And I remember when um when they won that, that 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 was the launch campaign. They'd won it from Widens. And I thought, this is just terrible. You know, you looked at the work that Lowe had done and Redbrick Road and then Widens after them. And what they've done subsequently, I think with the um what's their their food stories camp what's the what's the latest uh, iteration? A couple of years later beginning of 2017 they launched food love stories and um, which is still which is lovely yeah, and still running now they don't grow up they just get bigger didn't take me long to work out the trick though shredded chicken and black bean enchiladas with lime oregano and my little secret a bit of smoke and spice with chipotle paste dinner's up did you hear that Never failed yet. Food Love Stories, brought to you by Tesco. And that, I think that really changed it, because if they'd stuck with that weird family, thank God they moved on from that. And, you know, congratulations to BBH and to, and to, and to Tesco. I mean, I think Dave Lewis uh, famously was a, uh, a graduate at Unilever with um, Neil Munn, who's the CEO, global CEO of BBH, and that he had a long-standing relationship. So um, it shows that sometimes these things pay off. And in terms of payoff, um, reading the effective work, effectiveness work here now, uh, the work of the two agencies, BBH and Mediacom, has had a return on investment of £13.65 for every £1 spent on marketing and has contributed to Tesco growing like-for-like sales of 28% over the five years. I love the methodology and how they work out because I'm always so sceptical about how they work, you know, how they how they link the actual sales to the advertising investment. I mean, I'm sure it's been a great campaign, but I'd love to know, I'd love to see a statistic how they work that to figure out. Why are you sceptical? I think it's bullshit. Why? I don't think, I, well, you know, I think, you know, we all know that we, we wouldn't be doing this unless we thought advertising works, but I think the, the fact that £13.65 can be attributed to every pound spent on advertising is, is specious. Mm. And not just for Tesco, but for every for every IPA case study, it's it's retrospectively um, attributing success um, to an ad campaign when there are so many other factors there. That doesn't mean we should be celebrating, because of course we should, but I just think it's... Um, it's slightly disreputable. Mm, I must admit, I don't know very much about it, but I'm intrigued to find out more about this um, methodology. Please write in, IPA. Please, please write in. Uh, we love you, IPA. Closing off our conversation about spoken word and the arts. Um, now that we can't go to the cinema, increasingly less museums and other fun things, where are creators actually getting their ideas? Um, I hope it's not just watching YouTube videos all day. Or maybe as our next guest, YouTube's MD, maybe he'd like that. It's always been YouTube, mate. It's always been. 
<laughs> okay, uh, let's indeed move on to our interview with Ben McCoon Wilson, uh, MD UK of YouTube, and then Jeremy and I will return to talk about a few ads. And I'm joined on the campaign podcast today by Ben McCohen Wilson. He's the UK Managing Director for YouTube. Ben, hi, how are you? And where does the campaign podcast find you today? Uh, hi, Omar. I'm very well. Thank you very much, first of all, for, for having me on. I am sat in a very rainy Clapham, uh, working from home, as uh, I have been now for, as many of you, I'm sure, have, or uh, many of your listeners have, uh, for... What are we up to? Seven months now. Now surviving better than we did at the at, at the start of lockdown. At the start of lockdown, there were uh, seven of us in a in a five bedroom house. Now that the kids are back at school and my father in law has gone back to the states, things are a little a uh, little easier and a little bit more normal. Oh wow, that's definitely a full house. Um, and also buying into my emerging theory that most of the UK ad industry does indeed live in South London. Um, so it's good <laughs> to see that. Um, so um, it's it's a, it's an exciting time. I mean, it's always exciting times of YouTube, but um, even more so um, with the launch in the UK of YouTube Selects. That's right. And um, we're going to talk a bit about, about what that means uh, for UK advertisers. Um, but first. Um, We've not actually spoken before, Ben, and I wanted to find out a bit more about you. Um, so what's your background? Um, what were you doing before you became uh, MD of YouTube? And now that you are in that role, what do you do? What do you do at YouTube? Ben? What is it I do? So, so look, I've been at YouTube now uh, over nine and a half years and, and in, a, in a circular career path that I, I can guarantee is best not to try and explain to one's grandmother. Um, nine and a half years ago, I actually began to... Uh, the first role I had at YouTube was to run uh, the UK business, um, which was obviously a lot smaller back then. Um, but I'd come from ITV. I was at ITV for almost seven years beforehand, where I'd run um, the online and interact. I was MD of the online interactive uh, businesses there. So I've been at YouTube nine and a half years. I've moved through after that first stint looking after the UK. I've moved through ever expanding roles, covering increased bits of geography. Um, increased uh, areas of kind of scope in terms of content verticals. So leading our news, our sports, um, our TV, our movies. And then in April of last year, we created managing director roles in kind of six of our markets globally, of which the UK was one. So my role today is worrying about all elements of YouTube in the UK. So they're kind of the three core dimensions to that. First, our users, are we growing? Are they deriving satisfaction from the content that they are finding? Um, are we delivering them content that they that they love? Secondly, from our, our creators and partners, so those people who are creating and uploading content in the UK, are they growing? And then thirdly, in terms of our, our relationship with advertisers and are we delivering everything that our advertising partners, whether whether on kind of brand advertising or um, or on uh, programmatic advertising, are we delivering everything that uh, they need and require from 
from the platform. Interesting. So the UK rollout um, was announced last week for YouTube Select, uh, which was announced globally. Um, Before we dive into what YouTube Select is and frankly why advertisers should care about it, um, more generally, in in terms of your UK focus perspective, I guess the impression a lot of people have with YouTube and indeed Google, it's, you know, a very American company, maybe decisions are kind of taken centrally. How much variation is there you know, generally in the UK, if you're a UK viewer or if you're a UK advertiser compared to, let's say, the US? So one of the things that's perhaps different from most, if not all of uh, not just Google's platforms, but actually technology platforms is, is of course, YouTube's incredibly local. Our our users in the UK consume uh, very differently. The creators who are on our platform are incredibly uh, local. So, yeah, and the UK as we do in every kind of genre of media, the UK is a leading market for YouTube in terms of uh, the creators that are on our platform. And that is true in every genre. People like the the Sidemen in in gaming or Zoella in fashion and beauty or Joe Wicks in in Keep Fit or Jamie Oliver in, um, in food. And similarly, in terms of advertising, I mean, the markets in which, um, although the products, the underlying products are the same, the, balance between scale at which brand advertising plays in any individual uh, market versus um, kind of direct response or action-based advertising is very different market by market. And the demands of agencies and advertisers in markets are also, if not unique, at least differentiated in each market. And so really what my role is designed to do is to help to sew those pieces together in a way that makes sense. Okay, so let's get into YouTube Select a bit. I think um, this is an evolution, ultimately, of um, what used to be called Preferred. Um, Stop me if I've got that wrong. Um, But broadly, what we're talking about now is, um, and they've rolled it. You've rolled it out to the UK now, and UK brands will now be able to access um, exclusive creator lineups as well as um, bespoke content experiences. And what that means, it looks like, is so. For example, you can pre-package. A con- you got a content package um, that you can buy across instead of um, kind of advertisers actually ticking loads of boxes, I suppose. Um, and also you're offering what you're calling a top tier offering um, for advertisers that want to build their own custom lineups and curate a tailored content strategy. Um, so I guess, what are you trying to achieve with this? What are, what are you trying to do that wasn't there before? Well, look, I think the, the thing that advertisers have known and we've known for a, for a long time is that YouTube is you're kind of absolutely there in terms of deliver, our capabilities of delivering reach. Uh, pre-lockdown Ofcom last year, when they collated everybody's viewership across kind of the on-demand platforms from the broadcasters and the broadcasters' live viewership, we were the second largest commercial television channel in the UK for all audiences, second only to ITV1. And when you looked at it for the 16 to 34 year old audience, we were not just the biggest channel, but we were bigger than all of the BBC's channels, all of ITV's channels, all of Channel 4's channels and all of Channel 5's channels added together. What we've done with uh, YouTube Select is really brought together the uh, offering of partners and creator content. So whether that's endemic creators or whether that's traditional media uh, channels and we've got a huge array of, of of both on the on the platform in the UK. Brought those together into lineups that include the most popular, most watched content in the UK, 
that are prepackaged to make it easy to buy across key categories, key genres, or or, or key audiences. And you know, really, there what what uh, brands and advertisers are are accessing is not just the incredible reach that we've got, but the incredible uh, connection that audiences are then finding with that incredible content. So is it, I suppose, a tacit admission that you've got to a stage where there's just so much content on YouTube that you've got to do more work at actually kind of create, uh, actually signposting at creating packages that advertisers can buy against? Or or are you saying that there's a, a greater demand for contextual advertising rather than buying against purely reach? I, th- I think it's a combination of both those. For many brands and advertisers, being reassured that the content you're you're seeing is content that you think, oh, that's that's great content, you know, and and really actually allowing that content and the engagement, the engagement of an audience with that content, do a lot more work for us in terms of um, helping advertisers understand why a placement on YouTube is a is fantastically valuable and is delivering kind of premium content for, for that audience. You know, not only uh, have we now got lineups, which as you say, are kind of like a, a, an evolution of a concept that we introduced with Google Preferred, but also adding to that moments and programs around kind of tentpole events and cultural moments throughout the year, kind of allowing uh, advertisers and agencies to build uh, custom lineups themselves. So if there's a particular, I guess, combination of audience or content category that you're looking to to chase for a particular either campaign or for for your brand overall, then what um, YouTube Select allows you to do is to pull that together in a in a custom lineup that only you can access. And so, how much of this is geared at, I suppose, um, your blue chip big brand advertisers who um, very much want to be ultra brand safe and not have ads appear to stuff that I suppose you might call the long tail of content, you know, user generated content that isn't you know, necessarily vetted before it goes up? Is it kind of giving, I don't know, Procter & Gamble and Unilever, for example, um, we've seen in the past that brands have suspended spend after um, ads were inadvertently placed to content that wasn't deemed safe. Is it about kind of um, reassuring those marketers? No. So, so you know, our, our issues um, around people you know, kind of having incidents kind of, as you say, three, four years ago where their ads ran against content that, you know, not just they, but we also would have preferred uh, wasn't, number one, wasn't on the platform, and number two, uh, you know, if it were on the platform, didn't have ads running against it. Yeah, it's something that we spent and invested a huge amount around uh, ensuring that, you know, not just that the platform is protected from that content, but also additionally, there is a threshold beyond that protection of removal of content from the platform, where the bar is higher still for content that carries advertising full stop. We've put in place an enormous amount of both human and machine infrastructure um, to, to make the platform safe, not just for, for brands, but for our users and also for our, for our content creators. What YouTube Select is about is not, is, is not that. YouTube Select is absolutely around you know, really allowing advertisers, increasing the, the flexibility that advertisers have. We recognize there are some brands out there for whom uh, it's not just about reaching the right audience. They also want to reach the right audience um, in association with a particular flavor of flavor of content and what YouTube Select is allows them to do is to do that either through pre-created lineups um, or pre-prepared lineups from us or to sew their own sew their own together. Mm. 
And now you said something very interesting while well, you were quoted over the weekend as saying something very interesting in terms of um, you, you told The Guardian um, that YouTube is more representative of modern Britain than um, broadcasters like the BBC um, because you offered audiences material from, quote, different races, genders and regional diversity that just isn't available in traditional media. Um now, a lot of the, the, the YouTube select, the content packages we've been talking about, it seems like it's going to come from essentially repackaged broadcaster content, you know, uh, these uh, less diverse places. Um, so with, given that kind of you get this huge amount of diversity from user-generated content, um, how do you how do you square that kind of diverse content with what you're trying to do with premium content? Yeah, first, first thing to say is absolutely our, our YouTube select lineups will not be made purely of uh, um, traditional media material. Um, they absolutely will include uh, yeah, the incredible array of diverse and and massively engaged content that is on our that is on our platform. And I think the second thing to say, and this goes to kind of what you might have seen me quoted as saying in the in the Guardian, it is true that traditional uh, you know it's not me saying it. Traditional television itself is saying it. If you look at the uh, McTaggart lecture from this year's Edinburgh Television Festival. You saw David Lasuru saying it, which is you know, television has got an issue, um, which is that it is not diverse, and it, it's had that issue for some time, and it's talked a lot about that issue, and it hasn't addressed that issue over an extended period. Because of our open nature as a platform, we are able to surface just this incredible richness and diversity of content creators and of and of and of partners whether they're individuals or whether they're uh, small companies and in turn are able to engage audiences in a way that they're only able to do because they speak to them in a in a tone of voice that feels familiar and real but irrespective of where in the UK somebody is or what color of skin they have or or, or what sexual orientation they are or what religious orientation they are if they are able, if they have a passion for a particular idea and they are able to articulate that passion through video in a way that engages their audience, they are able to build their presence on, on YouTube as a platform. You know, in music, if you look at Stormzy, if you unsigned for eight years, if you look at Dua Lipa, unsigned for five years on our, on our, on our platform, you know, this is talent that in that interim period before being signed by a major label was being funded by their presence on YouTube. Yeah, and that is that is you know something that again is something I I draw an immense sense of, of of pride around, but also a huge sense of there is a real opportunity for brands and for advertisers who really really would like to be where uh, their audiences are experiencing the content with which they connect most deeply. There is a real opportunity with YouTube. It's certainly a fascinating thing if I, you know, to use a jargony word, democratization, this democratization of production, which, you know, YouTube has, you know, um, certainly benefited from in terms of, you know, your, 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 your standard iPhone now records in 4K. And, you know, you don't have to have loads of expensive kit to create a good quality video. Your point about diversity is well taken. How far does YouTube need to become more like the broadcasting industry in terms of having those greater checks for ensuring that content is high quality and brand safe? Um, or, or how much does the broadcast industry actually need to become more like YouTube and actually kind of 
have more open platforms maybe for embracing kind of new forms of content generation? The first thing to say is just in terms of yeah, the scale of, of YouTube's creative ecosystem. You know, we there was a, a piece of work done, uh, looked at, I guess it was done early this year, but looking at 2019 by Oxford Economics that showed that our ecosystem in the UK on YouTube supported the equivalent of 30,000 full-time employed jobs. Now, that is a massive infrastructure of individuals. That's way bigger than, than, than studios or others in the, in, the, in the UK. That's a huge contribution to the UK's creative economy. The economic contribution that, that our creators are making, that we are making, that advertisers are making through investment that advertisers are making through YouTube to that incredible uh, creative economy is genuinely on a similar scale as some of the you kind of very you know, like the, some of the biggest broadcasters in 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 the UK, and I think you know, you know I just don't accept that we're like the small kid in the corner anymore. The second piece is to say around regulation, where we are the commissioner of content, so where we have YouTube originals, all the rules that apply on broadcast apply to us. Then, when you look begin to look at kind of the rules that that, that are in place more more broadly. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of things that are, that are happening. You know, kind of clearly there is there is a structure of um, regulation in place around around advertising, where the you know, kind of the standards that are, are applied, the rules that are applied, but it's the same regulator that that rule uh, that um, governs us, as governs the broadcasters. Though the rules that are applied for online advertising are currently different in some respects than those that are applied uh, on air, and we're as we've said. I've, Definitely on the record as saying that we we welcome any discussions around uh, around that. I think the final piece, which we are now about to enter the kind of last phase on, is around the um, in the UK will be dealt with through uh, regulation around what's called online harms, and that will bring into into being a uh, a system of regulation around online platforms that really starts to externalise some of the things that that we and other platforms have, have attempted to put in place, but will, you know, I'm sure, add additional requirements to that and put a system of governance around that in the same way you see a system of governance that has kind of accreted over many, many years around broadcasting uh, and other things. Maybe your final question, which is around what can, you know, kind of could broadcasters be looking at other things? I think they are already. I think broadcasters are already. I think if you look at you know, the BBC picked up People Just Do Nothing, where you know, had been, which had been running again on YouTube for four years, the smart broadcasters, the smart independent producers are already working with talent who's come direct to YouTube. Actually, people don't need to travel to London they, to, to get a job on, on YouTube in the way that they did in television. They don't need to have you know, mum or dad's connection to get them the internship at whichever broadcaster it happens to be. They can just be good. I've worked in it most of my professional life i've worked in the television industry most of my professional life i am a big big fan of uh of of television and i think there are real opportunities both ways you know, we, we take enormous pride from that rather than feeling any any grievance for it so you mentioned netflix obviously the pandemic has it led to an increase in tv watching across the board whether that's linear tv subscriber video demand like netflix youtube as well um, with the with the rise as well as TikTok, which is also you know continued to go from strength to strength, I'm I'm interested to know where did 
who's YouTube more scared of? He's more scared of Netflix and kind of Disney Plus and more kind of subscriber platforms that people are easy to access for cheap. Or is it more kind of like the direct short form rival or someone like TikTok who are doing things in a different way? All of that is competition, right? It's all competition for eyeballs. It's whether it's a traditional broadcaster, whether it's a, you know, um, whether it's a new player, an SVOD player like Netflix or, or Amazon Prime, or whether it's a new kind of short form video platform like uh, TikTok or Instagram. First thing I wake up every morning thinking is, <laughs> thank God I decided digital video was a thing, <laughs> right? Turn, turns out, turns out the world thinks digital video is a thing. So the first thing to say is. All of that competition makes me feel incredibly confident that digital video is a great place to be, both creatively uh, and, and, and as, a, as a business. The second thing to say is you always want to try and learn from what you think everybody who is any entrant into your market or, or around your market is, uh, is doing and doing well in terms of what they're delivering to their, their consumers. What are they delivering to their consumers? What are they delivering to their customers and advertisers? What is it that you can learn from that? What is it that you must up your game to, to ensure that you are at least as good, if not better than them at? And then I think ultimately what you've got to do, you, you can't drive yourself mad looking to, to just compete. You have to be clear on what is it you will be true to. And for YouTube, that is about a promise to ultimately to our content creators that we are the best place for them to build an audience and from that audience for them to monetize that audience and to build a creative career for themselves. And for as long as that is true, for as long as that core promise is true, then we have an opportunity from which to build a relationship both with, our, with, with users and with our advertisers around that. Everybody else can innovate as much as, uh, uh, as they want around us, but I have to worry about is our promise still true today? If you are a young creative in the UK today, am I still your best place to build your audience and ultimately to build either your business or your creative career? Um, and I think, you know, I'm really proud that I think that is categorically still true today. Um, not that you, there aren't other things you could do with any other platform or with other broadcasters or anything else, but, but actually at its core, that is what I deliver. So just to summarize, just to clarify, if we, if we just kind of strip it down to the short form free open web video content providers yourself and someone like TikTok, you think kind of what's really going to um, define success in the next few years is how best your platforms can collaborate and encourage creators onto the platform. So, so absolutely. So yeah, I, I don't know that I would think of our platform as uh as short form any more than i would think of it as long form right i think but at its core i must be the best place for an individual creator or a company or whether small or big to place their content to build that an audience around that content and then to be able to monetize uh, that i don't know that i don't know that tiktok thinks of things in the same way right i don't i don't know that either their proposition to advertisers is the same as that or their proposition to to creators is the same. If I, uh, you know, if I think either of, of of my own use of the platform or others, or indeed of some of the things they've said in the in the last week, I don't know that that's their ambition either. Um, nor should it be, right? They they will, I'm sure, create a very successful. Um, you know, they're incredibly well backed. I'm sure they will find an incredibly strong place for them uh, for themselves 
and we will seek, and we've just launched a, a product called YouTube Shorts in in India, which you know we will obviously look to bring to to the UK in in due course. But you know, what is it that we think we can learn from them? You know, is there a is does TikTok offer an onboarding an easy trial at creation, uh, much easier, lower perceived cost at creation than than worrying about creating a long form video does is that what is that the lesson that i should be taking from uh from tiktok or is it or is it something else and finally before i let you go ben uh what are you watching on tv right now what's it what's your favorite show so on television my goodness that's a that is a hard one i've got uh four daughters so i've been um you know my my i've got two who are 17 and 14 so they drive a lot of my uh weekend viewing which scripted series that i watched with them was killing eve so i've seen all of all episodes of, yeah. of killing eve i didn't see it on live television i watch again probably because i've got four kids watch very little um that's that's live but i love yeah you know, I, I do enjoy scripted drama i enjoy scripted comedy and i enjoy when it's on my all-time favorite television show would have to i'm afraid be have i got news for you that's would be my ah, yeah. that's kind of the one thing that over god now what 30 years i've probably not missed very many episodes of and i've also started watching again though it's not on uh, television uh spitting image um because when i was at itv i was a big proponent of bringing it bringing it back so almost 10 years ago trying to get get that back on air and i'm delighted that they've done that yes and a, a good example of um a recurrent theme that we're, we're finding on the campaign podcast is whether it's um old media, new media, whatever, uh, the most important thing is to keep um, trying and iterating and getting better as you go. Uh, but I am going to let you go now. Um, ben McCone-Wilson, um, very generous of your time. Thanks for appearing on the Campaign Podcast. Thanks very much, Omar. Good to speak to you. Bye-bye. And I'm back with Jeremy Lee, campaign's premium content editor. Um, Jeremy, what percentage of your your media consumption is YouTube? How many how many YouTube videos do you watch a day? Uh, not a huge amount. I watch a lot of streaming. So, for example, last night I watched the mighty Hampton Richmond Borough FC beat Hornchurch in the fourth round of the FA Cup on YouTube. But generally, I don't. Um, I probably watch on a couple of weeks. How about you? Oh, I I watch a lot of YouTube. Um, it's mostly, um, it's came up in the interview, I watch a lot of broadcast stuff that's been repackaged for YouTube because um, a lot, particularly Sky Sports, uh, NBC for my American political junkie stuff, they, they kind of package stuff really well. So you don't have to watch the whole episode. Um, you just have to kind of like skip through the pre-roll ads and things. Um, I don't watch a lot of so-called user-generated, you know, influencer stuff. Apart from like some like hardcore tech stuff, but in general, I don't really. Um, but yeah, it's kind of especially um, it's on it's on my Virgin Media red button, and it's really kind of um, software is quite easy to use. So um, yeah, I try not to go down rabbit holes, but yeah, it does take up a lot of my <laughs> TV time. I was going to say, you know how bad my um, my Wi-Fi is, so it's probably best that I I avoid it because I'd be here all day otherwise. Yeah, uh, just put a few more coins in the meter. Um, all the all these ads we're about to look at are available on YouTube, as 
they are on campaignlive.co.uk just search for creative work um our first one is a new one by hsbc uh by wonderman thompson is the ad agency and it features richard ayoade once again it's called the new different let's have a quick listen why wait for normal Let's build the new different. That music is um, Bill Conti's Gonna Fly Now, uh, which you might know from um, a familiar boxing movie. Uh, Ayoade, who's of course known for Travel Man and the IT crowd. Um, he's been doing HSBC ads for a while now. Uh, Jeremy, what do you think of this latest offering? I love it. I love. I think they've um, one of them, Thompson, and I think this idea originated from JWT beforehand. They've created something that's really campaignable, and he's brilliant. Um, he's a very likable uh, person, and the whole issue, you know, the whole point about being a global bank uh, is just really resonates. And who was the actor who did it before? Who, you know, what's his name? Um, you know, the chap I mean, they name a corner after him on Top Gear. Ah, he's really ancient now. But I think, anyway, they, they've moved on. Hold on, I'm going to Google it. Carry on, bear with me. We'll just see some clever editing and bring that in. Michael Gambon, that's the chap I'm thinking of. He's got back to me eventually. Do you remember Michael Gambon used to be the man who used to be he used to be the HSB spokesperson? He was all this sort of like increasingly decrepit old man. And um oh. really, Well he's he's really old now, so I think they've really updated it and um, brilliantly. Michael Gambon, a fine, fine actor. Uh, yes, of course, uh, he was um, definitely the face of HSBC for a long time. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong is an island and is also part of something bigger, namely China. And, um, I, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't sit right with me that um, an ad campaign like this has a very positive message. Um, but, yeah, HSBC's um, policy towards Hong Kong um well people can google that for themselves um but i don't think that a bank that should be appealing to such a positive message in the uk um necessarily it sits right with um its stance over um security laws that china is imposing on hong kong but anyway let's move on before we before we get down the political rabbit hole uh next ad is aunt bessie's this one is called caring is the hardest thing we do by gray london let's have a quick listen I used to love my nan's roasts. She'd cook them every Sunday, without fail. She was an amazing woman, my nan. Truly amazing. Beef's at six o'clock, sponge at nine o'clock. Can you put your free? <laughs> Caring is the hardest thing we do. This one's interesting, Jeremy, because um, the creative director at Grey, uh, Chris Clark, um, he actually reached into his own family history for inspiration. Uh, this is the first work that Grey London has done for Aunt Bessie's. Um, how, did it, how did it strike you? I thought it was quite sweet and it seemed slightly old fashioned in a sort of, you know, in a sort of 1980s ad kind of way and that it seemed something you'd have seen 20 years ago. It's nostalgic and sepia um, tinged. And yeah, I thought it was sweet, but it used, it used some, it was, it was surprising um, in that I haven't seen an ad like that for a while. It was sentimental. Um, I, I, I didn't mind it at all. How about you? 
Yeah, again, sentimental is the right word. Um, it definitely kind of evokes that it's that brand provenance, that brand authenticity of you know longevity and that feeling of family and comfort, and it definitely works on that level. Um, um, you know, um, <laughs> I actually had a Sunday roast last night. Uh, funnily enough, did you have our best? No, no, we, um, we 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 make our own Yorkshire puddings. Thank you very much. Well, that's that's exactly the point because that granny, like, if that was you know a nostalgic thing back in the back in the day, she probably wouldn't have bought, bought them out of a plastic bag and mugged them in the <laughs> oven. I know she's blind, but if it was authentic, she'd have probably made them herself. And that's certainly, uh, I think, our bestest has been a relatively recent frozen Yorkshire pudding is a relatively recent innovation. Yeah, I mean, it came up. Um, we were we were talking about rustlers last week, and I, I was questioning whether you know now that we've all been working at home and we're not going to restaurants as much as before. I just think that you know people are just going to spend a bit more on you know luxurious home eating. You know, um, and um, do you think do you, th- do you think Aunt Bessie's counts as luxurious home eating? Well, well, I would I would say rustlers definitely not. But Aunt Bessie's, you know, if you you know you might you might have um, a roast on a Tuesday night, <laughs> uh, which you wouldn't do usually. So it's a convenience thing more than anything. Um, so yeah, uh, good luck, Aunt Bessie's. Uh, more power to you. Uh, and finally, speaking of home living, working, uh, we've got Dunelm. Um, this one's by Malolo London. It's called Home we get it let's have a quick listen home we get it Donnell. So what this ad is, it's a series of um, little videos, little stories which are based on real life stories which are shared by the brand's customers and staff and this seems to be such a growing trend of kind of like staff getting involved and you know just everything's a bit meta um jeremy um this ad this ad is called home we get it do you get it not really i mean i, I know this has come from the ipa's designated effectiveness company of the year i just thought it was a slightly too long um I wasn't even saying it's a mood film. It's, it's just a film about someone walking around the house. It didn't interest me particularly. I didn't hate it, um, but I didn't love it either. I didn't get that it was what it was selling. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's 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 wallpaper to me. How about you? Um, I th- yeah, I, th- I think um, it's it's not. It's difficult because um, we had um, the B and Q ad launch. Was it two or three weeks ago? And we talked about that, and um, that was very. It was very different speed in terms of you know it was it was it was kind of like I'm really trying to drive at the emotion in a different way um, in terms of like the almost turning in you know, homeworking into something big and grand, whereas this is coming at it from a different way in terms of you know. The, the the everyday person doing everyday things and you know it's i, th- I think it, I it's think, banal isn't it i think I, I think it's a difficult one i i, I don't want to judge it too harshly because when you, when you say wallpaper I, I think there's an argument for for wallpaper advertising and it's a harsh <laughs> way to put it but it's just you know it, it depends where you are in that kind of brand awareness consideration journey and what you're trying to do with these ads and you know if if you're a well thought of brand and there's no reason to think that dunelm isn't then you just kind of want to just just poke the consumer a bit and say hello we're still there this is something nice look how nice our staff are and so maybe that's where they are and it's good enough for them i don't know i totally agree i think as a counterpoint to being cute which was overblown and pompous this is um banal and inoffensive 
and on that bombshell uh, we're gonna get out of here um jeremy thank you so much as usual uh thank you listener for listening to the campaign podcast thanks to campaigns ben lonsborough for doing such a good job editing and co-producing this podcast and remember we were talking about the magazine before it comes out this week but you can see all our stories features look at the latest ads on campaignlive.co.uk and lastly most importantly please stay safe wherever you are listener and we will catch you next time Bye-bye.